It is not how much you can do, it is about how much you can recover from. Stay tuned as we discuss with local experts on the importance of recovery. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to Therapists in Motion podcast. This is Dan hosting again today, and I am once again joined by Brett Fisher and a new special guest to Therapists in Motion podcast, Trent Rincon. Welcome, gentlemen. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. So as we alluded to in the introduction today, we're going to talk about something that in physical therapy school uh, and a lot of us don't really spend time thinking about, even though it's a really crucial component of physical recovery, athletic performance, physical therapy recovery. Um, so yeah, we're going to kind of get into the topic of recovery. You know, as we were discussing this in our, our prep, it was something that, you know, Trent and Brett both have learned over time, uh, being here at the Fisher Institute, you know, together. And so I'm really excited to learn from them and hopefully give you all some um, additional big hitters for utilizing with your athletes, whether, whether it is a high school athlete, a weekend warrior, or an aspiring professional athlete slash professional athlete. Uh, so today we're going to get into really four main topics. We're going to talk about recovery for muscles and joints, uh, breathing, sleep, which is a huge component, and then things that can be quote-unquote in our tool bag. So let's start first and foremost with uh, muscles and joints. And, you know, I really want to hear your guys' thoughts on something from a movement standpoint that we know very well about how muscles and joints work, but let's talk about what it means to help our muscles and joints really recover. I think for us, the basic premise with all of this, especially as we relate to it as physical therapists and some of us strength coaches, athletic trainers, and the such, is trying to really empower our athletes, our patients, our clients to champion this on their own. Uh, it's something that we talk a lot about. We, as in the PT world, we give quote unquote home exercise programs uh, that are somewhat a little dry. Uh, may not exactly fit what we're trying to do just as a profession, but these are things that we're trying to give life skills to these clients of any age. Anybody can really do this, and it's, it's taking these paradigms and really allowing patients to, to understand what they're doing. We're in a place now, I feel like, in this world where there's not a lack of information, but there's a really big lack of understanding of the information, the wins and the where's to use this stuff that I think we really can help, especially when it comes to helping the recovery of our muscles, of our joints, uh, our nervous system and such. I think for me, I just uh, I've had the opportunity of being this in 35 years in sports medicine. And when you're working with some of the top athletes in the world, they're looking for every edge possible that is uh, drug free and, you know, not going to be banned. So being exposed to this all over the world uh, the different types of recoveries has been fascinating to me. And, I, you know, for, it's our goal, like Trent said, is here, you know, at Spooner Physical Therapy is to go ahead and take that knowledge and bring it down to every patient that we see, not just athletes, but every patient that comes in here and educate and empower our patients, like Trent said, to be able to, um, be able to provide this for themselves to help with recovery. Because here as physical therapists, we're here to elicit a response therapeutic wise. And if we can enhance that by doing some of the major factors that we're going to talk about, it really improves our efficiency of what we're doing. 
think I think to combine with that too, we all only get one body. It's it's one shot to get this thing right. And if we don't invest in that, now our athletes are learning this right now better than anybody because they know, especially with their career timeline, which is are usually very short, uh, that they have to really invest in their human performance, but their body as it as it relates to just being a regular human, so their their performance equals dollar figures. Well, so does ours. <laughs> it's just in a different light and how that looks. And so if we don't take care of it, starting now, whenever that might be, you know, as an investment, you know, people talk about making investments when you're young because it's easier to do now. The same thing applies even in our sense, more importantly, when you're younger than when you're older, but you can always start it and you can always be better. So I think that that's huge about empowering our fellow professionals, the mindset of investing in that one body, right? I mean, you know, in lieu of things that are going on in this world, people are freaking out about investments, right? But this is the most, you could argue that right now, this is really the time to invest in your own health and wellness and some of that has to be on the recovery side. So I want you to kind of go through some strategies related to muscles and joints, whether there's injury or it's a performance side that help and that can help both our, our professional listeners as well as you know our, the public who may listen to this start to have a better mindset of, of working on muscle and joint recovery. I think from the top... To help your patients understand that it's important and it's, it's, it's a big part of being comfortable, being uncomfortable. If they're going to start doing this, this is not something where it should always feel good while you're doing it. If, if that's the case, then we may not have the desired result to actually make a change or an improvement to it. Not saying you should be in pain, but under, helping them understand what the purpose is of getting comfortable being uncomfortable with these short-term situations. And then starting with developing a routine. What does that routine look like and why is it there? Now, does this routine need to be an hour, a two-hour, a 10-hour type of thing? Nobody has that kind of time. But when you start looking through Instagram, you start reading on Facebook, and you start seeing all these things that, that quote-unquote everybody is doing, probably selling, it, there becomes no little time to actually do your life, to take care of your kids, to, to have quality meal time, to have quality time with your relationships. There's no way to do that. We're not trying to talk about that. How do we streamline this so you can ha- pay attention to the body that you need to now allow you to do those things and to start to pay attention to the small things? So I think for us, and at least for me, and Brett can speak to this too as well, is I usually encourage my clients every single day to pick two body parts. Whatever that might be, if it correlates to what you're going to train, maybe it correlates to some of the your biggest challenges that you have, because we all have unique challenges and quote-unquote lackings in our body. Maybe your foot and ankle doesn't move like it's supposed to. Maybe you've got hip issue challenges. Maybe your little back is always tight. Maybe you have a neck issue. It's picking these two body parts, and they should be different every single day, but your primaries can be localized to you, and pick those ones that you really need to emphasize. So I think that's a huge thing for people to think about. Two body parts, right? How realistic is it for us to go after two big rocks every single day? I think that's also really important for us to think about when we're prescribing a home exercise program, right? That if we give them two primary big rock body parts that may give them a little bit of motion and a little bit of 
muscle facilitation or strengthening, that that's something that is tangible and realistic. And it's also supported in the evidence from compliance, right? Because like you said, it's not realistic for the vast majority of our people to spend hours on recovery. Um, so when you are thinking about, and Brad, I want you to answer on this question too. When you guys are thinking about two body parts and, and I like, I like how you phrase potentially one that is frequently problematic or it gets sticky or gunky. What are you encouraging them from a time standpoint? I think to answer that question directly and to, to back up even a little bit. Yes. The two body parts a day, that's already after you've moved the whole body. At least, at least once. Whatever that looks like, you move the whole body every single day. And there's a ton of different ways to do that depending on who you want to believe, who you want to read, who you like, what works for you. But time-wise, especially if we're talking about soft tissue or joints, I love the two-minute rule. Set a timer, two minutes, and your time and attention to, we'll use that example, your ankle joint. And you're going to do one or two things for two minutes. And then you're going to get off of that and go somewhere else. To me... Two minutes is two minutes. I can do something for two minutes, but you'll be surprised doing your self ankle mode for two minutes. You're looking at the clock and after about 30 seconds, you're like, I've been here for a while. What, what else do I have to do? It's like, no, be intentional, be directed, get off your phone, spend two intentional minutes on your ankle to get that thing right and then move to the next one. And I think the thing that you're pointing out is great in that so many people, we explain this to our patients here at Spooner Physical Therapy is that Yes, we maybe work on the ankle and you have no ankle pain, but maybe that's contributing to the knee pain. Yes. And so therefore, the two things that we pick aren't always symptomatic at that moment. I think it's a little bit of education that we give to our, our patients that's saying, hey, as Dan said, maybe something's gunky, not moving well. We as experts of movement experts need to be able to identify these problem areas for our patients and give them the appropriate type exercises, be it flexibility, be it recovery, be it strengthening to address those problems specifically. So, you know, I was listening to something earlier this morning and the presenter was speaking about how some people get to be an expert in the ankle, but they don't understand the knee, but yet the tibia is part of both joints, right? So I think that that that's huge. What you just said, fish about we, they may not be symptomatic in their ankle. They may be symptomatic in their knee, but by working on that ankle, you are directly impacting their knee because you are working on part of the same bony structure, right? If you're working on closed chain dorsiflexion, you have to have tibia translating over a fixed foot, which is going to have an impact directly on your knee. Um, you know, I like your two minute thing and two minute time because I feel like it's completely realistic. Yes. It's, it, it's, it's not, oh my gosh, I have to spend 25 minutes on time under tension on my shoulder or on my ankle. No, it's two minutes. Like we spend two minutes on Facebook or Instagram all the time, right? I mean, there, there's people that say that you scroll, each person sc- spends time scrolling on their phone to go around the world multiple times every year. Like that's how many miles of scrolling they, they, they spend. So I think it's completely realistic with that two minute time. Um, speaking to muscles and joints, are there any additional outside pieces of equipment that, that you feel are really pivotal for somebody to 
invest in their body that is going to assist with recovery of their muscles and joints? I think the number one thing for me, I mean, I two pop into my head, but I would say, and I'm, I'm probably sure, probably I might still Brett's on this one, uh, a big band. There's so many uses for a, a big band, whether it's a little bit of resistance for a mobilization, a way to use it on my hip, my knee, my ankle. Uh, I want something that I have multiple uses for. You know, one-hit wonders are great, especially if you're a very specific uh, individual need. But as far as with travel, with ease of use, with repeatability, a big band. And there's a lot of discussion as to how big, you know, we can get into that later if we need to. But a big band is something that I would be looking at and I carry with me almost anywhere I go. And for me, I know this may sound like an advertisement, but I, I believe in the product. It's Theragun. They have the strongest guns out there. Uh, it's able to push more interstitial fluid than any other gun out there. Um, I carry on the sidelines with the Arizona Cardinals. That's how much I believe in it for immediate recovery, even post-game recovery, recovery Monday mornings after an NFL game. Uh, for me, it's been a great tool for our patients to use at home, show them how to be applied, and the science behind it. Because using the, the Theragun for more than um, two minutes at a time, you actually are decreasing the neurological activity of an, of an area. So you actually can decrease it. Um, at the same time, used for less than 20 seconds, you're actually increasing the neural activity and creating more of a, a pregame response. So there's different ways of using these guns. And I, I love what they've done. Um, and they're continuing to use it for therapists. They change the handles, they change the angles. So it's easier for the patient to use it. But it's been a, a new toy in the last toy and tool for me in the last probably five years that we didn't have, you know, 15 years ago. And it's been a great adjunct to a lot of our patients' recovery. Yeah, and I mean, that that obviously talks a little bit to the tools. It'll be the fourth component of our discussion. But I think it's important for people to start to conceptualize in their heads that, yes, it's a treatment, but it's also a recovery, right? And, and we think of like a big band more as, oh, I'm going to use this as a warm-up to get their tissues moving before I go and do a strengthening exercise. But it's also can be used conversely at the end to help from a recovery standpoint, right? So I think that... That, that's it. Those are two great tools. Um, I think with that, Dan, too, is that you need to talk to your therapist, whoever that is, and they can show you two really good things to use with that band. You know, hey, I'm here for my knee. Can I use this for my hip and my ankle? Or what does that look like? You know, talk to your therapist. Every every person here at Spooner Physical Therapy has the ability to show you what that looks like. And, hey, I'm going to spend two minutes doing my ankle and my low back even though I'm here for my knee, your therapist is going to give you a hug and want to know what is happening with you because you got this thing figured out. All right. So I see one other thing here that I think is worth talking about in muscles and joints. And it's, it's talking about the importance of being able to squat. So Trent, can you spend a little time talking about how you use the squat as a recovery tool for muscles and joints? Did you just say squatting and recovery? Squatting why, and why recovery? You, what? Why would you think that? <laughs> For me, squatting is one of the simplest, most humanistic movements that we do. It's right in there with walking. And yet squatting is something that most of us do very poorly. And yet it involves every single action of our human movements that we do. We get in and out of the car. We use the restroom. We sit down to go to work. That's every single time we do that is a squatting motion. And yet most of us have very, very poor usage of that. The problem is that most of us, when we think about squatting, 
everyone puts a barbell on your back. And there's your squat. When unfortunately, most of us don't squat that way hardly ever, and nor do we necessarily need to go that far down that road. Most of us don't deserve, quote unquote, to do the squat with a bar on our back because we haven't achieved the physical capabilities there. Does not mean that you should not be able to squat. I love the squat as a recovery tool, especially right after workouts, because it gets you into positions where you're starting to close off joints, close off hips, close off knees, close off ankles, and allows you to move fluid in conjunction with how you would use the Theragun afterwards to allow you to recover faster. Getting all of that tissue back to the heart so it can start to recover and improve oxygen levels is going to be invaluable. So learning how to squat properly is only going to translate into better athletic performance at any point in your life and in your career. It's something that we spend a lot of time in the rehab side teaching people even after their surgery or after their dysfunction because they already don't move correctly. I think that's that's a very valuable nugget to think about the squat as a recovery tool as opposed to a strengthening exercise yeah. and, and getting to a point where you are closing down a joint to open back up fluid flow. I, that's, that's a really, that's something I hadn't really thought about. So I, I think that's a really valuable nugget for our listeners to really pause, pause the podcast, please pick it back up, pause it, think about the squat and how you pers- traditionally educate your patient on the purpose of a squat and, and based on this, if you're going to change the way that you educate your patient on the purpose of a squat. So yoga people have this figured out for a long time. It's all about closing joints and opening joints for yoga people. If you've gone to yoga class, that's what they're talking about. The language is just a little bit different. You can do the same thing in a squat performance, especially for your lower half. And most of us are using our lower half, but you can also include upper half. Again, different topic. However, I think it's an integral part of what we need to do, especially for recovery. Well, speaking as the older person here in the 50s, you guys are younger. So um, I use the squat a lot too, but I do it unloaded. We do it various times here in the physical therapy facility where we'll use a bar that's on a pulley system and they're actually able to unload themselves holding the bar and going down the squat position. I've been on situations uh, on the football field after practice where I was able to hang two, two bands like Trent mentioned earlier and put a bar in between and they're able to do unloaded squats when they're coming off of rehab post-workout. So I'm doing the squat motion, but in an unloaded position. So I want to kind of, um, for the older population, I'm, re- I'm representing right now. <laughs> I wanted to give that side. <laughs> well, I, go ahead. I think even more important for the older population is that squat that gets lost mm-hmm. and gets fearful and gets scary. We, we know that if you can't get on off the ground as, as an older individual, mm-hmm. that starts to lead to challenges not just in performance, in your livelihood. That's a huge thing. If you can't squat, you're going to have a very difficult time getting on off the ground. Not that you're there, Brett. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that this discussion on uh, muscles and joints was, was provided some great nuggets for myself, hopefully for our listeners. So let's move on to the second component, which is breathing. You know, everybody has a diaphragm. Um, often, I think it is something that especially in the United States, due to um, our vanity. We don't use our diaphragms correctly, and that leads to a lot of other symptoms, but it greatly impacts our ability to recover. 
So let's spend a little time discussing the importance of breathing and and why breathing during and post-workout is really, really important. Um, And I think that there's going to be some huge, you know, nuggets again for our listeners in this section. So this for me, Dan, has been been one of my new found passions and interest points for, for learning in how we operate as humans. You spoke directly about the diaphragm and how do we improve that usage. Most people have understood that. And unfortunately, we've understood it probably incorrectly because everyone just thinks if I just breathe and push my belly out towards the front, you know, make myself quote unquote fat, that now I'm diaphragmatic breathing, which unfortunately isn't quite the whole picture. Uh, The big thing that I'm really, really spending a lot of time on, I'm trying to educate in a very concerned fashion because not everybody is ready for some of this information, but the simple fact that we breathe as humans very poorly. When our nose is designed to breathe, our mouth is designed to communicate and to provide fuel. At very, very emergency times, we can use it to breathe, but it's really, really not designed for that. And if we're talking about this current, very, very hour, this time, this day, this age, if we're talking about our immune system, our immune system starts in our nose. And if I know that it starts in my nose and I don't utilize it, have I not already compromised myself in an immune factor without drawing too far down that rabbit hole? That becomes a very, very mighty issue that we don't give enough attention to. All right. So with that being said, let's talk about some of the strategies and things that you have broached now with your more study on efficient breathing and what that leads to both from a performance and a recovery side. Because I I think that a lot of people will train their, their patients to diaphragmatically breathe, but like you said, they may not do it properly and with enough scientific backing to support really why they're doing what they're doing. That's, that's the funny thing is there's a ton of science about this. <laughs> and, yet, and yet it's still, even in, even in our medical community, is just is not understood and not done correctly. The simple thing is, and you may have already grasped it, is that breathing through our nose is vastly important. And not just while we're sitting and relaxing and watching TV, but in a primary component of almost in every single thing that we do, especially in our athletic performance. Now, we talk about... And if you want to jump down a little bit of a scientific realm, what our mitochondria is made of. Most people, at least in this podcast, probably understand what a mitochondria is on a very simple capacity. It is our powerhouse. It's where our power source comes from. Those things, very simply, are made up of two things, two nutrients for fuel. And one is our diets. We get fuel from that. Very simple. We understand that very well, especially in force and performance. The other half of that is oxygen. So if you know that those are the two important things and yet you get your fuel right from your, your diet and your nutrition, but you very vastly uh, limit your oxygen uptake, we already have a problem. And that's just from the cellular level. So now you're already limiting your body from the inside out before you even get started on all the other cool things that we're going to talk about later. Yeah, I think that that's huge. That, that That's a good reminder histology that was, you know, for some people... They probably took it in undergrad and other people, they had it in their PT program. And it's like, oh man, yeah, those two things are crucial for us to be able to start at the right level. And I think 
like in today's world, so many people are focused on the nutritional side, mm-hmm. which is hugely important, right? Agreed. Totally agree. And there's so many different schools of thought, which is, you know, hard to know which school of thought to, fo- to focus on and to believe and to trust. But the component of the, for- the, the fact that we forget about the oxygen uptake to be able to allow those mitochondria to perform at the level that they need to perform for both performance and recovery. Yep. So I, I think that, you know, in some of the things that I've studied, we talk about, you know, nose versus mouth breathing and where's your tongue at and what does that do to your pressure system and how does that increase the efficiency? And so I kind of want to, you know, throw that to you maybe as a softball, maybe as a curveball about, you know, tongue positioning and nose versus mouth breathing and really what that does to power or inhibit our ability to both perform and recover. So the challenge becomes is when I tell you that you need to nose breathe most of the time and everyone all of a sudden closes their mouth and starts breathing through their nose, like, ah, how hard could it be? You don't realize how often your mouth drops open and you start to breathe through your mouth. That changes our muscle physiology, our body physiology. To keep it as simple as we possibly can, we know that there are two systems in our body that work in the control part. We have our sympathetic system and our parasympathetic system. We know that our sympathetic system, that's our fight or flight. That's our get up, get after it, get going, get moving. That's what we do in sports performance. That's how we respond in those environments. That is why music is so important. We've learned that that it can increase our sympathetic response. That's how we lift weights. That's how we push faster, go harder. The problem is, is that we as individuals tend to live in our sympathetic state way too long. When it becomes our recovery state, is in our parasympathetic stage. The problem is, is that when you mouth breathe, you keep your body in that sympathetic state for a lot longer, which unfortunately creates the challenges in recovery. It creates an increase in anxiety. It creates an increase in heart rate and other markers that we look to more commonly as problematics in our body's humanness. And when then eventually leads down into our sport performance, if that's something that we're going to draw down to. However, if I can improve my nasal capacity and my ability to breathe through my nose more efficiently, now I lock back into that parasympathetic stage much more often, my body can recover. And I'm not talking about after sports performance. I'm talking about after a set. If I can recover better after each set that I do or after every interval or every rep, my body has a greater capacity to utilize the fuel that I'm putting in it. It has a greater capacity to now lift harder, go further, be stronger, and recover better. I can't think of anything else that fits all those boxes better than anything that's out there right now. And it's free, weirdly enough. Huh. I think that's uh, that, that's pretty mind-blowing right there about the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic. And again, that's probably something that if a lot of listeners are like me, I hadn't thought about in that capacity before and related to mouth breathing continues our sympathetic response, which makes it more challenging for our body from an efficiency standpoint to recover. Huh? So things that I, I've th- I think that's gold. I've talked with our strength coach about a little bit and in, say you have a week where you're going to try and do some deload or some slowdowns in your workouts for that week. It's very difficult to tell an athlete go 50%. <laughs> You know, don't, don't push as hard. You know, maybe back it off a little bit. As a, as a retired, maybe older, still maybe aspiring athlete myself, that's very difficult for me. I can't imagine from a 
performance person that gets paid to do what they do to tell them the back box is 50%. But if I tell you to do the whole activity that I've created while only breathing through your nose, you can only go so hard. So I can adjust the weights. I can lift instead of going 80% of their one or three rep or five rep max in certain situations. I can also have them do loading while only breathing through your nose. You're only going to be able to push so much. Now my systems of energy are preserved and I didn't have to ask them to slow down. I said, you can push as long as you stay within that paradigm. Fascinating for me. I'm here taking notes off of this. It's great. But, you know, working in professional sports, you, you see these players that are play in a season and they basically are living in a sympathetic nervous system environment coming from high stress areas, contracts, uh, meetings, uh, media. Uh, there's always a, a, a camera in their face. And our goal is to try and get them into the parasympathetic state. So for these are great little tools to use that, like I said, we're empowering our patients and our athletes to get into that parasympathetic state because the body can't continue to run like that. We're seeing at a high level adrenal glands, adrenal levels are, are being shot. Vitamin D, we live in Arizona. We have low vitamin D in our athletes at times um, here in the state of Arizona. And that shouldn't be because these kids are under so much high stress. So we're seeing the effects of living in a sympathetic state. And, and like I said, this is a very, very important podcast to kind of get the education out there. So let's talk about, you know, you, you just said that sometimes you'll challenge your strength coaches to only allow their athletes to breathe through the nose. And I think that's more on the performance side, right? And, and there's, there's a purpose behind that. But you also talked about that breathing through your nose can help from a recovery standpoint. So what's the, what's the take home for our listeners on how they can start to integrate and teach and coach and potentially even live themselves, how they get themselves to that parasympathetic standpoint by their breathing pattern and sequencing? So a couple things with that, and that's a great, broad question that, that we can answer in multiple ways. The first thing is simple. The more you think about it, try and remind yourself to constantly breathe through your nose. As simple as that. In a workout paradigm, I try and encourage a lot of my clients as they do their warm-up, which reflects back to our first part of you know preparing muscles and soft tissues for, for usage, see if you can do the whole thing while just breathing through your nose. As you start to gently elevate your heart rate, you'll be surprised how quickly we revert to our mouth to open. You sit on the stationary bike for five minutes, you start to breathe through your mouth because you're increasing your heart rate up into that 90 beats per minute range, maybe 100, 110, give or take what your warm looks like. See if you can take that first 10 minutes of your warm-up and just breathe through your nose. It allows you to get your cardiovascular system completely on board. And then if you're not ready to go fully into this direction, that's fine. Breathe as you need to through your workout. Then when you get done, the quicker I can put you in parasympathetic stage, the faster you recover from your workout, which means more strength, more performance, better rest, less anxiety, less of the problems that Brett's talking about, which means you can go faster, harder, and more the next day, which now as it starts to build, we can see our workload start to improve over that week, over that month, over that year, just by simply tweaking that. And so what I will have a lot of my clients do is, is give them a certain simple sequence of what I can do after I'm done with my workout, maybe as I'm doing some cool down stretches or whatever that looks like for you, that can be a different topic as well, but trying to get them into a sequence of breathing where that can start to calm. And so there's different ones out there. I love the one where it is a sequence of a 
one, one, two, one. And what that means is it is a how long you can take an inhale, how long you can hold, how long you can exhale, and then how long you can hold again. And so if it's a one, one, two, one, say I take a breath and I inhale for, let's say, three seconds. I'm going to hold that breath for three seconds, and then I'm going to exhale for six, and then hold again for three, and then repeat. It allows your body, and you can do that all through the nose, nice inhale, three seconds inhale, hold it for three, see if you can control the exhale, and as you start to lengthen that exhale, it starts to, you'll feel your body already start to go calm. It's something that really allows your body to now return into a calmness, more recovery-based scenario. Again, there's several others out there. This is the one that I like to revert to first. Uh, and it's easy to teach clients because anyone can really go for a three-second inhale, a little bit of a hold. There's tons of research on how breath holds are so important for us. And so it already puts you in that frame of mind too as well. Uh, that's where I would start if you want to have a little bit of a what do I do? What does that protocol look like? That's where I would jump first. I think that's a great take home, again, take home practical nugget for any therapist slash listener to start utilizing themselves and practice it themselves. Because if you practice it yourself, it's going to be a lot easier to tell your patient or your client who maybe has a poor motor program on that, how long it's going to take for them to get it to where it's something that is, is innate and it, it's, it just happens normally as part of their recovery process because they've done it so, so long themselves, right? So I, I think that's a huge component for our therapists and listeners to start integrating right away. It's not that complicated from what it sounds like, but I know I'm a huge mouth breather and that's going to be a huge challenge for me. And so I'm uh, from a selfish standpoint i'm really grateful for that because i hopefully that'll help with some of my ability to recover uh more rapidly and more efficiently so a quick story on that and to tie it together because this is something that i think not only the athletes can do but myself as a, an employee and a worker and getting done with the day and you're in the car something that i'll employ even there because we have a high-paced pretty highly active lots of things going on in environment to really tone that down so now when i return home it allows me a very calm cool state to now walk into my door and know that things are going to be okay. Short story with this, I took an education course on, on these breathing things. The guy teaching the course, big athlete, tattooed up, hat down, really tough jujitsu guy. He's speaking very knowledgeable on this. And someone raised their hand and asked him, how has this changed your life the most? And we're all thinking, and I think everybody else is there. It's like, okay, he's going to give me some statistic for performance. I went from squatting this or from going this long in my matches to doing this. He says, and it, it almost gets me emotional sometimes. He's like, I'm nicer to my family. I'm like, here's this big, tough, strong guy. And you did not expect that answer. He's like, I am nicer to my family because I have now learned to control my anxiety levels. And I'm a much more calm person. I make much better decisions because now I can breathe efficiently. That, that shook me. That took me... Uh, by surprise, and then it allowed me to really think on the importance of what this brings to the table. That's really powerful. And I think, you know, going back to what Brett alluded to about our athletes who are under a lot of pressure, whether it's self-imposed or outside imposed, right? Whether that's coach, media, parent, spouse, agent, whatever, um, 
they can utilize this to help calm some of their anxiety. I think that's something like you said in our profession that we are in a heavy, you know, a lot of probably self pressure, you know, to help our patients get better faster, um, to deliver excellent outcomes. It, It can, anxiety can take the best of some of us from a thing from a therapist standpoint too. So I think that's a huge take home component for us. My son just came home from college and he's a college uh, level division one punter and they have a sports psychologist there. And he said he had his first session and he loved it. I said, why? He goes, well, he had me walk around the stadium with him and just kind of ask me questions about myself to get to know me. But my first exercise was breathing on the field and how to breathe when I'm off the field and on the sidelines during a game and but all how to breathe when I'm under pressure and he goes I was really really he goes I was really taken by dad because it, I didn't realize it and I, it made me feel more relaxed when I started doing what he started doing and I'm practicing it now so I thought it was pretty interesting that he that was the first lesson they teach in football for punters breathing yeah that's pretty cool so we spent a little time you know on muscles and joints and recovery you know, our experts suggested, you know, if you could put two tools in your tool bag that they would suggest uh, a big band and a Theragun. Um, and then relating to breathing is the importance of understanding how nose breathing really helps to facilitate oxygen uptake to help our mitochondria, the powerhouse of our body, really be more efficient and to help change our 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 system from a sympathetic to a parathetic parasympathetic state and some really good take-homes. So, you know, as we opened with, we were going to discuss four topics, muscles, joints, you know, for recovery, breathing, the importance of sleep, and then things in our tool bag. And then I think in the interest of you as the listener, we are going to transition sleep and the tool bag to part two of this discussion. Uh, But Trent does want to give one last resource here for um, all of you to check out for importance of breathing. So Trent, go ahead and provide that resource for our listeners. So with the number of course, Dan, that I was telling you about that I've been to on this and, and everyone seems to reference the same person. So the book is called The Oxygen Advantage and it's by a guy named McEwen. Uh, he has a TED Talk out there. There's YouTube things that he's done. Uh, he seems to be the authority when it comes to proper breathing, performance breathing. He is beyond educated. This is his baby. The book is fantastic. I've given it to most of my family. I've given it to friends and people that want to take that next level. Can't, can't recommend it more. Well, thanks for that. I think that's a, you know, whenever we can provide a, a concrete example and something for, for our therapist to go learn from, that's going to give them additional nuggets, take home right away. I think that's huge. Um, so stay tuned for the second part where we will talk about sleep, tool bag, hydration, as always, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com.